0: Whether long-range weapon or suicide bomb or wicked mind is a weapon of mass destruction. Whether you're solar song or BBC one is information is a weapon of mass destruction. You could the Caucasian or reporation. Racism is a weapon of mass destruction. Whether inflation or globalization, fear is a weapon of mass destruction. AM950,
1: the progressive voice of Minnesota. Welcome all to Mission Accomplishers. Hey, hey. mission accomplishers! Hosted by Hunter Haas, Eric Nelson, and Emmy Lou, my dog, my chihuahua is here today. Emmy, say something.
2: That's well, an ASMR podcast. Jeez, that is listen to disgusting that! Disgusting to see. Probably more than it is even here.
1: <laughs> yeah, that was a juicy, juicy lick. Emmy is a little chihuahua that um, is very, very attached and. Yeah, I can't leave my side. And uh she shows her affection by licking. She really likes to lick. She's um uh, she's kind of going through some stuff right now, a sad little chihuahua. So I feel bad for her. But um yeah, what do you do when your dog is depressed? I don't know. I mean, what are you supposed to do? Where do you go? What do you How do you get a dog in a better mood?
2: Sounds like a good question for Pet Connections. I
1: was thinking of that actually. Uh, it's, I it, I might call in uh, tomorrow and uh, see. But uh, like uh, I don't know. What, I don't know what you're supposed to do.
2: I mean, even though she's suppressed, she's still better behaved than most Chihuahuas but I've that, ever met.
1: That's the thing. Is that that's like the. Uh, robin williams type thing where someone on the outside isn't a problem so if one overlooks what they're going through
2: i can see that yeah my grandma had a similar thing when she had alzheimer's she was always a very strange kooky lady so <laughs> when she started losing her mind it seemed completely normal
1: yeah so i just worry that uh she'll like uh Something will change for the worse, and it'll be irreversible. So, I don't know. I don't know what to do. A sad Chihuahua. Uh, but yeah, we've been on a hiatus. This is, I actually did a show last week, but this is the first time you got the boys back together.
2: You just had a mission accomplished. Sure,
1: mission accomplished. Sure. Yep, the singular, not the plural. We're back, and uh, you can look forward to this every week
2: and. I'm right back in form. I feel rejuvenated, reduced, and recharged. I've uh, got my I... headphones precariously located on my head, so these will probably fall off oh, Scott, at he... some point during the show.
1: They're they're barely hanging on there. I don't even Everything know how... Everything you I'd... loved from before. <laughs> I know. Greatest hits. <clears throat> I am not rejuvenated and recharged. I am uh, exhausted and beat down, but... Uh, Hanging in there. Uh, But we got big plans this fall. Or want to get some big plans, I'd say. Don't really have the plans nailed down yet. But trying to uh, pursue some new avenues and uh, uh, take this show to the next level. Go from zero to one. (laughs) 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 But uh, I was thinking, because me and Eric chatted about what we thought the direction should go. And I thought a good addition would be a zine. So a physical DIY zine for the show, kind of to keep it hyper-local and to zag when everyone's going, like, in the podcast world, just podcast in general, internet, digital, do the other direction and go radio and zine print physical medium
2: it really feels like there's a dearth of information and i hope i'm using that word correctly to mean a lack of information on the local scale because like you said everyone's going international Mm -hmm. internet reaching out everywhere but at the same time you don't get the same quality of information about your community if you're only looking at something on the national scale or the international scale.
1: Totally. And there's really nothing uh, for younger people on the the local level. I'd say like um, just in general, people who stay informed about local things are typically older, like uh, local news, mm-hmm. uh, reading newspapers. Those are the best coverage of anything. Like the city pages, issues.
2: but that's still pretty limited. The reporters, yeah. there's some good reporters there. But they can only cover so many things,
1: and there's multiple options of uh, most mediums. So, really, that's the only one is the city pages. That's all I can think of. I mean, trying to do in this realm.
2: Obviously, there's Pioneer Press and Star Tribune,
1: but something about those those are
2: all super political. Whenever it's local, Mm -hmm. there's not just things going on in the community.
1: Yeah, so uh, of interest to mission accomplishers uh, we will provide that and hopefully uh, explore that idea and have a a bunch of magazines and such around town scattered. I think that could really be interesting and uh, uh, hopefully add to everyone's life here. Add positive things. Have a little uh, trinket of life that gives you some cool stuff and information. So I'm hoping to do that. What's going on in the world? Eric, what do you got?
2: Well, we've got the hurricane that struck and destroyed Alabama permanently.
1: <laughs> yeah, that was... Sad. That is... It's odd. It's classic Donald Trump of just doubling down on nothing. Like mm-hmm. it, it, that's really how the presidency started, too. You had Sean Spencer going out there to... Uh, really claim that the inauguration crowd was the biggest of all time, which is such an unimportant detail, but so important to Trump. And that's just happened here is that it was a mistake that didn't matter at all that now has to be over and over again.
2: But like part of what it is, I think, is just Trump seems to be less active in the past month than he has been earlier where he's always done this stuff. Like, where do you think, oh, he makes a giant blunder, and then we just go, oh, look at him, he's an idiot. He said this, and it's not true. Uh-huh. But he does that every other day, so we're constantly talking about new things. I think the reason why this story just continues and continues and continues, it might be a little more egregious because he didn't do the Sharpie map, then you have the chief of staff <laughs> threatening to yeah. fire, like, the meteorologists, but it just doesn't seem, I don't understand why this is such a big story. When this is a pattern of behavior he's been on for so long,
1: it is, but it's just, it's concerning that I, I know it, it's the same as always, but every time it's just, it's weird for uh, the, the president to behave that way. And it it's, is
2: very weird. It, but it's like, it's not that a can new,
1: never be normal. Like, it's like it not is. A new but
2: behavior, and it seems weird that we focused on this, of all things, to draw the line in the sand. Where it's like, oh, okay, now we're going to focus on this for two weeks.
1: Uh, but it's just because then the reactions, like you said, the Sharpie thing, it just then goes to a new level It, it that should be reported. I mean, it's, just, it, I mean, it's, it's hard, hard to, to ignore. It, but it
2: feels like it's like the first story in every news thing I've watched in the past two weeks.
1: Yeah, that's fair enough. And that's always – Ultimately,
2: it was kind of – I mean, this is Donald Trump's fault like a pretty innocent flub on his part where I could have seen myself making that mistake. Alabama's right there on the coast.
1: Well, that's the thing with any of these mistakes from politicians. You got two ways to handle it. You can either own up and then no one really does care. They do forgive or you can double up. You can keep going and then it creates these huge problems. It's the same thing Elizabeth Warren did like, Going and getting the uh, although
2: there's a third way, which I think is the way that Trump has used for the past, you know, hundred of these mistakes is just to ignore it, just move on past it. So maybe I did, maybe I didn't. Yeah. Where now he seems well, to have like doubled. effective. And if you just so yeah, you can apologize, you can ignore it, or you can double down, which seems to be what he's doing for this for some reason.
1: And that's yeah, that's the thing is that he cares about what you think of him. So. He has to be right on these things that are clearly just mistakes. That's why it, like, is concerning. It's just like this is clearly a maniac. Like, who cares about that? Clear Only someone that has, like, severe problems in their head.
2: But, like, I'll acknowledge he's a maniac. I just don't know why he just keeps – like, why do we keep talking about this when he's done this before with so many things? And it's like – yeah, he's a maniac. We've known he's a maniac for the past three years. Um, it's I, nothing new. It's not a new behavior. I'd be more concerned if Trump went out and said, I'm so sorry, everyone. I made a huge mistake. I didn't mean to say Alabama. I must have been mistaken. My, that, would be that, would be, that would be weird. That would be weird. That would definitely be, I be I would weird. Be like, okay, Trump, there's something seriously wrong.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, it's just uh, – it shows the, the judgment and it's just concerning of someone with such – power that yeah you, you say that but i agree it, it is it, it
2: does show bad judgment but it's like i know something could we happen though and then that's what it's being this reported isn't, this isn't new it's like reporting it, like trump's hair is funny it's shouldn't, still like shouldn't we all pay attention this guy has bad judgment because have you noticed his hair
1: yeah uh, but it uh, it just lends itself to if he did do something drastic and impulsive that had severe consequences you would want to know the behavior leading up to it.
2: Uh, Which is the exact same thing he's been doing for the past, I don't know, 20 years?
1: Uh, but, I don't know. I don't...
2: I don't understand. I'm just, I'm saying, yeah, it's very strange, and I get what you pointed out. Why are we still talking about it?
1: Yeah. Um, it, well, it's because he kept doing things, but... I I, yeah, I, I, I do see what is. you're saying. I do, I, but I, I, I just, just can't stopped. quite get to you where you are. I think
2: doing... Completely stupid things for the past two weeks, and they have to keep talking about
1: that. You think that's it?
2: Mm-hmm. His I don't strategy know. All throughout the election cycle, was just make a new blunder that would have sunk a campaign.
1: Yeah.
2: Every week, and they can't pin one new thing down on him.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well.
2: He just needs to get back out there and start saying stupid stuff.
1: He. Uh, he is going to be. Hitting the roads soon, I'm sure. It's going to be uh, the red meat for the crowd where he gets up there and uh, gets his army angry.
2: Focusing all his extra juices. Yeah. Uh,
1: So I imagine that to be happening very soon, that he really gets out there hard. It will probably be... uh, Let's see, we got fall, winter, I would see say like the beginning of next year he's going to be just on the road campaigning the rest of the, until November. I can't wait. Yeah. It's going to be really soon though, because we're getting close to yeah. the... Uh,
2: um, it's like nine months now, something like that.
1: Yeah. Well, it's, no, it'd be t- November. 14. November, oh yeah,
2: I guess it'd be more than a year.
1: Yeah, but, but close. And a year, I mean, you start campaigning... Uh, more than a year out. Uh, He's going
2: to have to be the primary of Evan McMullin? Or yeah, those whatever.
1: primaries, that was uh, interesting. You got um, the, what was, Evan <laughs> Uh He was the Utah... The Mormon guy? Yeah, who ran on some third party that was, it was far right wing, but... More
2: traditional, like, yeah,
1: yeah, more the what we're used to traditional
2: with. neocons, mm hmm, and more then John Bolton's ilk, you, which we'll get to.
1: You got the uh, Massachusetts governor, uh, Bill Weld, who is like a Arnie Carlson type, kind of that long lost moderate Republican, and now we got Joe Walsh, who was the talk radio host. I,
2: trying to walk back everything he's done yes. for the past three years. Oh
1: my God! It's uh, <laughs> I no, watched his him, interview. He was,
2: he's just as awful as Trump is, yeah. except he also believes in the Russia Gate stuff. He, so he's like Russia shouldn't be making us do these crimes. We should be doing these crimes.
1: And I mean, talk about a John Kerry flip flopper. He's all over the place. With he believes something, and then. Just goes out of style, and he's got to go all in on a whole new, different, bad take.
2: Do you think I'll give Joe Walsh credit for the long sign predictor of electoral success? What's that? I remember, what he's saying, "I see a lot of Donald Trump signs uh, up around town. <laughs> I don't see any Hillary. I think this is going to be bad news for Hillary." And he was one hundred percent correct. No one was excited for Hillary. It, I even, yeah. driving, I've talked about this on the show before, but driving through Minneapolis, very mm-hmm. left wing city, mm-hmm. I saw maybe five Donald Trump signs. You know, on a trip straight okay. through the residential areas of Minneapolis, mm-hmm. I think I saw one. Hillary Clinton sign.
1: That was uh, something uh, similar I noticed was that Donald Trump had a huge Reddit, like a subreddit of fans, and like Bernie had a big one, uh, but Hillary Clinton had... A non-existent, like very, very small group of people who were actually enthusiastic supporters that wanted to build like a community online for her. And I knew that that was trouble at the time. I, I I, wasn't quite sure what it meant, but I knew it wasn't good. I was like, there's no enthusiasm with her.
2: Yeah, you can complain about like down when people dismiss Donald Trump as, oh, he's only got maybe – 25 percent of the electorate who's dedicated but we can beat them and like well those 25 percent are absolutely going to vote yeah and they're going to be obnoxious every single day until voting
1: enthusiasm is really big uh, because it drives them to get their friends to show up and vote it just it really can sway things because on a massive level if you've got one person in a close split environment like we are in America today it's really the voting public. It's close to fifty fifty I mean any party could really win any presidential election uh, It comes down to better candidates right now and if you can have one that stirs up a lot of enthusiasm, it can make up for a lot of flaws like trump so Though there's those people who never Trump Republicans, they still end up voting for him for the
2: large part. Yeah, absolutely. And the people who are fans of Trump, they're absolutely going to vote for him. This Mm -hmm. is like a personal victory as opposed to someone on the Democratic side who's maybe just, "Eh, I guess i will vote for so-and-so. Let's say you run into some errands, you're busy that day. Exactly.
1: You might skip voting. Exactly. There's
2: no way in hell Trump voters are going to skip voting.
1: You're not pushing your friends and family to show up because you're not stoked on the person to begin with. The only thing is that you convince them to show up against Trump, but that doesn't work as it's not as powerful uh, of motive. the The hate in politics doesn't influence others as well. Like you can have your personal hate, but swaying others. It's not as effective. If you're excited about someone, that's a better way to excite others to potentially participate.
2: People Mm -hmm. want to hear. It feels so indirect voting for a candidate against Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. We can say Donald Trump is for racism, for all this hatred stuff, but he's, okay the emblem of it. He completely is the personification of that aid, and it feels direct. Like, I'm voting for this guy. He's going to fix my problems.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that's going to be big. And um, you know who's been really – who has a lot of support from Democrats? Like uh, that kind of cross-spectrum is uh, Elizabeth Warren. Like there's a lot of enthusiasm
2: from – I've, the corporate Democrats? It's very strange to me to but see. But you, you get
1: – her candidacy kind of gets a lot of different Democrats excited. But yeah. it doesn't extend necessarily to the uh, American public. But the Democratic Party and voters, yeah. uh, she's probably the most popular candidate like of all different
2: factions within. I've heard – of the Democratic Party? Yeah. Yeah, like I have the professional managerial class I've heard is like the perfect descriptor for her voting base. And it is people who just feel like professionals, who feel very serious, like, oh, I'm going to take the very serious candidate. She has all these plans.
1: But you also get activists, too, like more so than any other candidate that appeals to that group.
2: Not Bernie.
1: But I'm not saying, what I'm saying is, I'm not...
2: I think Bernie the, is a higher activist yes, participation.
1: Exa- per, yes, exactly. Yes, what I'm saying is she, more so than anyone else, is drawing from all the pools. Like, not necessarily the most...
2: Okay, that's fair.
1: But the uh, uh, the most di- different pools of people, but not necessarily like... Uh,
2: the, the Democrat m- dorks. Every kind of Democrat dorks. Yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> that's a good... <laughs>
2: <laughs> Which I think Democrat jerks are like – I think we think that they're more influential than they are.
1: Well, because they're the ones that are talking yeah, about everything. Yeah, they're the ones
2: on all the media, all the news. Well, it's
1: hard to read the people who only participate voting day because they're not active. They're not mm-hmm. talking about these things. So it's, it's a harder thing to speculate on. It definitely is. It is. I
2: just have experience talking with my friends, my family, people I yeah. work with at the union – Obviously, Union's probably going to slant more towards Bernie, but it seems like I'm using the Joe Walsh technique right now, too. I see a ton of bumper stickers for Bernie. Yeah, no, I have not really seen – maybe it's because he doesn't but have Here's
1: them. the thing is that uh, yeah, Bernie definitely uh, – probably the candidate with the most enthusiasm in his base, uh, but also decisive where there's people who don't like Bernie as well. Whereas that's kind of what I'm saying is there's less people who oh, yeah. dislike Elizabeth Warren.
2: Why well, use it as like the the DNC um, analogy Remember, I was the chairman of the DNC or something like that when Tom Perez was going against, against Keith Ellison. Yeah. And the DNC pointed to this guy, hey, we have Tom Perez. He's just as progressive as Keith Ellison. He has all the same beliefs. He has all the same positions. So we'll just go with him even though everyone's yeah. demanding Keith Ellison. Whereas I think it's just because they feel like they can control him better. And I think mm-hmm. that's the same thing with Elizabeth Warren is they feel like, oh, she's going to be accountable to all these large money-interested groups. Yeah. Uh, I think that's why she's being pushed by the establishment so hard. I think – I don't I'm, – I'm not trying to bash Elizabeth Warren. Uh, yeah. I like her but I just don't think that she's the right choice for president.
1: Yeah. Uh-huh. And I'm only speaking from just observations. I'm not saying that this is a good...
2: Oh, I'm speaking from my crystal ball.
1: Ah. But uh, that's my only point in that she's drawing from a lot of groups. I'm not even saying that that is a reason to support her or anything. Just an observation that she's... I haven't quite seen that. Usually, most groups are pitted against each other within uh,
2: Mm. the...
1: Yes, the well, like thinking, establishment. I'm
2: thinking, I'm thinking of Obama versus Hillary Clinton. Even the establishment kind of abandoned Hillary Clinton at a certain point, but she was getting a broad range of support from different groups within the establishment.
1: I would say that Obama was the one most similar to like the Elizabeth Warren situation in that election. Where Oh, it, yeah,
2: absolutely. I'm agreeing.
1: Yeah, so it's similar to that. That's kind of a good parallel uh if, What's going on in the primary processes. Um, Although with Obama, there wasn't someone like Bernie in that race. It was a uh, Hillary Obama. Who was even the third? uh, John Edwards. Edwards, Edwards, yeah. John Edwards, I think, was the most viable third option that had. He was kind of up there. but um,
2: I don't really remember anything about his positions except for he cheated on his wife with cancer.
1: Yeah, I, that was such a uh, just kind of depressing time when John Edwards was the hope of the party. I mean, it was the, the Al Gore, 2000, then you get John Kerry, and that whole primary was just like such a mess that they screwed up beating Bush in that one. Um, but at that time, just like there was not progressive optimism. That's and, why
2: I think this might be one of the years that like I think I'm – uh, interim elections, the Democrats kind of don't care as much. Just yeah. they're they're okay with losing because they'll do the old Mitch McConnell trick, oh. where it's like we can just let see how bad things can get with Trump. Yeah, because then we're really going to cement our victory in the upcoming election. Uh,
1: yeah, I, I I do see that they would be willing to just take the loss to get it back to their way. The
2: people yeah, people have like an, an even bigger advantage in the next election. And what does
1: it take to change the party? Like, when will that die out? Why do they always have control? Like, the the people, the, the, the rulers of the Democratic Party that push it in that direction, why do they have to have control? What does it take for them to leave? And most of them are nameless. I can't even put... Uh, The the people making the decisions. Tom
2: Perez. I don't know if Tom Perez does anything.
1: Uh, Yeah, he's kind of the face to the outreach director. But there's all these people uh, Mm -hmm. uh, that are in control of the direction that the party goes and where to uh, fund things, what to support, what to uh, take orders from. And that's uh, incredibly –
2: Who appoints superdelegates? Powerful
1: bureaucracy there is – running one of these two parties in America. But what's... Like, I don't have the answer. I just have the question. And when are they going to be out? Because no one in like the general public wants the direction that they continue to go.
2: Yeah, I think they kind of just hide in the shadows. I,
1: I don't what know did, what, what you it just... takes to, to get the party to oh, be yeah. reflective of the people who... Vote for it, like to truly get. Because you know who has done it is in England. The Labour Party successfully managed to shift the direction and get out of Tony Blair, have Jeremy Corbyn in control. But it's the the Labour Party really is something that people can.
2: It's an example
1: support and like of- get behind and be enthusiastic of the party. That's not something we see here in America on the left. You're never stoked, really, on the Democratic Party for the most part.
2: uh, Yeah, very few people have their allegiance. I mean, they'll vote for the Democrat because the Republicans are just ghouls. Mm -hmm. But they're not voting for them because, like, oh, well, they've been appointed by the Democratic Party. I have such respect for these.
1: And the Republican Party is that way. They really, like, they like their party.
2: (laughs) Yeah, when people try to use... Well, Bernie's not actually a democrat. Is like a rag on him. That's such an ineffective like mm-hmm. insult to him because people like that.
1: I know. People yeah. do
2: not like the Democratic Party.
1: No, it's so true and as, especially like once you get out of these circles, they uh the general people have a even less favorable opinion of the, the party. Yeah, it's and, like it's, and, and it's like democrats, democratic voters don't have that high opinion of the party. General Public definitely doesn't have a Even high opinion lower. of it.
2: That's why we're, we've discussed this before. But when you put things to a ballot vote, yeah. surprisingly left-wing policies can get passed because they're not Absolutely. tied up with the association of being with the Democratic Party.
1: Uh, that, so that that's – what I people like the ideas that Democrats push. Like uh, if you could just detach – the the baggage of the party it would be overwhelming victories of ideas and what's it going to take to have something where it aligns with what we want what we believe and something that we can be excited for rather than just the the vehicle of opposition to the Republicans I don't know so uh, other than It's not even right news. Yeah. (laughs) But regardless, I uh, had an observation, uh, and I was kind of just thinking about podcasting in general and um, how how do you create value for people, or why do people like certain things? Uh, What is in it? Why do things become popular? Uh, And it really comes down to... uh, you're receiving something of value like with podcasts you listen because uh, you gain something Uh, whether it's like you develop a friendship with the the podcasters like they feel like your friends which happens a lot because i mean it's an intimate experience you're listening to people talk
2: yeah i can't imagine anyone has any sort of positive feelings towards me (laughs) but i know that i've had them towards other podcasters yeah where i feel like i understand who they are there's a certain Mm -hmm. intimacy behind hearing someone just talk through ideas and you can understand where their thought process is coming from
1: absolutely so i was just thinking about all of this and how to approach things and uh i noticed joe rogan incredibly popular podcast. Really kind of insane how popular it has become nowadays. Uh, we'll look back and it'll be like the most influential media of this time period.
2: But I don't even know if we need to look back. I mean, you can look at so many things where mm-hmm. it's like Oh, yeah, when Alex Jones did the Joe Rogan podcast. Yeah. Maybe even now when Bernie Sanders did the Joe Rogan podcast.
1: Yeah. I just mean it'll be more recognized and, like, uh, given the weight it deserves because this show's kind of a heavy hitter and influence of these days. But uh, why did it get so popular? And, uh, I mean, he's been doing it forever, like, since the beginning of podcasts. He was really one of those first shows that were around
2: and i think that's a part of the formula of why it's so popular i think there's probably other people around contemporaries who are probably just as good as he is at certain things but he just had the foot in the door very early
1: yeah but the thing is he he wasn't the only one that was doing it back then and he wasn't the only celebrity doing it back then Uh, but what made him different was that he really made the show his personality. Because if you look at the mix of things that really embody the show, uh, you've got psychedelics, UFC fighting, and uh, just kind of dude in general. Comedy.
3: Bow hunting. Uh, pool. Like,
1: yeah. Man interest. Quick. But the three of those things like don't really... Fit well. There's no model of that, like working as a, as a topic or of a show or a, a category. No,
2: no <laughs> analytics wizards would come up with. Let's combine hallucinogenics <laughs> yeah. with MMA.
1: But that is really how people are, and that that's how they have their interests. The the things that don't really uh, make sense or align as cleanly as really marketing would like, and. Uh, The show, it it just came across well uh, to so many people because it was authentic and sincere. Uh, It it represented him and as well as a lot of other people. Like uh, they fit in uh, to a certain extent to one of those categories or all those categories and uh, the show – got a very loyal devout following because of that and it's just kind of the importance of uh sincerity with media figures or anything but especially that's how i'm like looking at this
2: yeah and especially in the age of today where everything's hyper commoditized mm-hmm. hyper corporate everything's always an advertisement or trying to yes. cross reference something so they can use that influence to market to something else Mm -hmm. it kind of stood alone as Joe Rogan's already pretty rich he obviously has some ads before his podcast but he's going to be okay either way Mm -hmm. and I think what shines through is that he's just a genuinely curious person Mm -hmm. who wants to talk to these people and he would be doing it if there was a thousand people listening or not
1: yeah and it's uh, it's like not pretentious it's accessible to anyone like the the a barrier of entry for listening. Well, anyone can jump in, and uh, th- that's good. That's uh, really how m- more people should approach things. Uh, have it. it's a, it's a good uh, kind of a uh, the the common man, and I mean that it, not the radio guy, but the uh, uh, just the the blue collar working dude of today. It's a it's a good. Uh, or he, Joe Rogan, kind of is the voice of that large group of people nowadays. Um, but being able to speak to those,
2: do you think that it's that, or because I don't even really see myself being represented by Rogan? No. I just value his authenticity. Yeah, or I, a I, lot of his like behavior, like interests or things don't really come across to me as like things that I care about. But at the same time, I know that he's sincere about all this stuff. And he's been criticized, rightfully so, a lot of the times that he lets on, you know, right-wing figures who can mm-hmm. just spout off and, you know, get a larger platform. But I think that it's mainly just because he doesn't have any sort of direction he wants to take yeah. the podcast in the beginning. He has no sort of motivations behind it, just asking them.
1: Sure. Yeah. I Maybe that wasn't the best way to phrase it because you're right about that. Uh, and – it is it's really a diverse group of people that listen. It's like kind of all walks of life. People who wouldn't necessarily mix in real life, like uh from different cliques and groups and uh I'm always amazed at how many people Go back to Joe Rogan. Like, uh, that's the common thing. Oh, when you're that talking at parties together. with people? Yeah, exactly. You
2: know, what, you know, you listen to, oh, I work in radio. Like, oh, yeah, I listen to, like, podcasts. <laughs> like, what podcast you listen to? Joe Rogan, he's the best, man. I just love him. He's, yeah. like, such a good guy. They, yeah. Honestly, I've had so many conversations that and of that different people. Yeah.
1: Like, completely different. And uh, even Chad, owner of uh, station, he's diehard Joe Rogan. Yeah. Yeah. That's, like, his favorite show. So. Huh. Um,
2: Big boss man.
1: It's so that alone of just how many people listen is interesting to me. It's uh, like how why is he resonating so much and uh, the, it, he is striking a nerve unlike anyone else. I mean, there's no really comparable person I can think of that uh, has the reach that he does right now.
2: Yeah, I don't know if they're – maybe you can look at like – like, I don't know. I'm just thinking reach-wise. There's like radio shows like Hot 97 and – Yeah, but that's still
1: not the same of like – Jim
2: and Sam. Yeah. It's not the same format at all.
1: And not the same just kind of um, –
2: Open-ended dialogue between people.
1: And just all-encompassing of really – anyone from, like, all walks of life.
2: Every topic. You
1: know, uh, mostly men, though. Like, this is a, a, a man thing. Like, there's sure, there's women that listen, but it's definitely a male phenomenon.
2: Yeah, I think it's distinctly geared towards men, just because mm-hmm. I think Joe Rogan is kind of a generally masculine guy. I think he's sensitive in a lot of ways, too. Yeah. But he's, you know, he has interests that are predominantly and historically yeah, more male-centric. Uh,
1: and so, just the He's he's crushing the game in the straight white male uh, market, the the forgotten market.
2: Although the, when I think about it, everyone I've talked to who loved Joe Rogan, I don't I think. think was white.
1: Uh, well, I, I can think. I've only I had, I've had like
2: three conversations, and they're. I don't think any of them are white. Um, I've <laughs> met
1: plenty of. I mean, our <laughs> friends listen to Joe Rogan. Do they? Yeah. I mean, yeah, I don't want
2: to start naming names, but uh, yes. Yeah, so, I listen to them, and I'm white, so good point. It,
1: it's uh, it's just crazy that I, – I can't think of anyone that uh, is more just – if I bring up someone that's going to like have their own experience with them yeah. like to, to as wide a group of people. Uh, but it's an authenticity, and it's just – it's rare these days. Everything, like you said – commodified, is like uh, researched, is, try, is pushed a certain way where this is just
2: there. They have some sort of narrative that they want to address in the interview or they want to push some sort of talking point where I think that what will come out as one of the most beneficial interviews or any media appearances during the Democratic primary season is uh, Bernie's appearance on Joe Rogan. Because I was looking at the comments. Every single person is being positive, and most of them are, oh, wow, I had such a misrepresented view of well, Sanders. Well, how about
1: where Andrew Yang went on, and two weeks before, he was on this show, and, like, unknown. And, that is but, true.
2: Yang probably saw a larger, like, percentage rise.
1: But the point is that uh, a politician appearing... This is the relevant place to go. This is where you connect to a a large group of people that actually has an impact. I mean, like you said, the Bernie thing and Yang, that's like proven that there is a huge bump from appearing on the Joe Rogan show.
2: And also because you know that when you're going on to a TV debate, not going to get to talk a lot. There's going to be a lot of back and forth. You can't really explain your positions correctly. Podcast format, you have hours to do it. And he's not going to – well, Joe Rogan is probably not going to lead you with questions and try to trick you, draw mm-hmm. you out. He'll just let you speak. Mm-hmm. And he's good at also formatting the conversation where it feels natural and also engaging. It's not just boring and listening to a person ramble for an hour like it is here.
1: Yeah. So Joe Rogan is kind of the uh, – as far as influence, reach, uh, the Howard Stern of today. Like uh Howard had such a huge audience and anytime you bring up his name, everyone's mind goes a certain way and that's not the point I'm making. I'm not saying the shock jack, anything like that. I'm just talking about influence, reach, listeners, having an impact on the world through media. Joe Rogan's definitely the one of today doing that.
2: I mean, as far as interview styles, he's kind of similar, even Mm -hmm. though it doesn't seem apparent, but he will compliment his guest. Make them feel comfortable and just let them speak. Yeah, and he lets them steer the direction of the conversation, but still kind of guides it in areas. Long
1: form as well, too, mm-hmm. that allows people to get their ideas out. Like, especially a lot of those interviews, it's not till like that first hour that things hit gear and then really interesting things start coming out of it. Because really, when you interview someone, Almost all the answers are going to be asked a million times before, and that's the only thing you can address because you've got to get those things out of the way. So having something that is longer to explore things is really where you start getting some interesting, start picking off the meat and uh, getting, uh, getting that first layer out and really having something, a substance.
2: He's good at moving the conversation as it flows naturally. You can tell that he doesn't have many pre outlined points. He just is a good listener and listens to what they're saying and then asks them Mm -hmm. questions that would naturally occur when you're sincerely listening to someone.
1: And uh, he was in town on Friday, I just remembered. So uh, uh, he was here.
2: Interesting. (laughs) Interesting. (laughs) <laughs> I, is he not still here? Because I thought for Sunday there was like a.
1: This is do I have the wrong day? I thought it was September twelfth, is what I thought. No,
2: actually it wasn't. I was gonna do his show for Iatsi, but I had to come oh. here.
1: Oh, you should have.
2: Well, was asking Sam to cover, asking Brett, and neither could. So I was like,
1: yeah. <laughs> but... Do you have anything else though? No. Okay. All right. That's.
2: Oh it. yeah, I actually do. All right. But it, and it's going to be slightly dated, but it's still relevant because people will still use this talking point going forward forever. And it's about the American unity that mm-hmm. we had after 9-11. It's like, oh, remember when we were all together, we were all working together, and what we could accomplish if we went back to that? And you have to try to think of what did we accomplish immediately after
1: 9-11? What we did- uh,
2: established the Patriot Act. <laughs> we went to two illegal wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. Hmm. I don't know if there's much to gain with forming unity when it's t- entirely based on spite of another place.
1: Yeah. And really since then is uh the polarization has also just skyrocketed from all of this. So yeah, it's the the result of 9/11 and its consequences. They weren't a positive thing of bringing people together. I what you're saying Tons of negative, just uh, overall bad contributions to the world as well as just anger amongst ourselves. So, I agree. It's not the thing to look back on with a positive, glowing nostalgia. Whoopsies. We made a mistake and cut the show ten minutes short, so... Here is some wise words from Miss Marianne Williamson and then Dr. Cornell West. I've been thinking a lot about, you know, American politics and it does seem particularly, um, you know, I'm, I'm in England and there's some sorts going on there as well,
0: but like a, there's a kind of a vividness, a luridness to American politics at present. But my question is
1: that... Are these uh, events not necessarily anomalous, but merely exaggerations, merely greater revelations of conditions that have always been present? Yeah, in, to put bluntly, whilst Donald, Donald Trump might seem
2: especially terrifying, is he merely not merely an amplification of conditions
3: and ideologies <coughs> that have long existed? Well, two things. First of all, if you have two major political parties both of whom set the idea of the businessman up to be god then it shouldn't surprise anyone from a metaphysical perspective that the worst kind of devilish perversion of that image would appear on the scene that was created by that but secondly we had reached a point in our society where we thought we had a consensus it's not like anyone thought Racism, bigotry, anti-Semitism, homophobia, misogyny, xenophobia didn't exist in America. But we thought we had reached a consensus that there were lines past which we would not go. We thought we had reached a consensus that no major political institution, any political party, etc., would give a serious political megaphone to those forces One party thought, well, we'll bring them in just because they'll vote for us, and then we'll moderate them once they get in, Mm. which didn't work. And also with social media, and then you have someone like um, President Trump who's willing to harness all that for political purposes, and you have the kind of crisis that we have now. But once again, and I think that those of us in the spiritual community have a lot to look at in ourselves because none of this came out of nowhere none of this could have happened had we not taken democracy for granted had we not thought somebody else you know I'm not political somebody else will handle that that's what we've learned about this we've learned how naive we were you can never take democracy for granted it's just like health and that's why this is a perfect place to be discussing this you have to take care of your nutrition you have to take care of your exercise you have to take care of your spiritual path your lifestyle all kinds of things you can't not cultivate health. Just wait till sickness almost inevitably arises and seek through allopathic means alone to just eradicate or suppress the symptoms. That model of allopathic medicine has now given way to an integrative approach. We need to do that with society. You can't not cultivate justice, not cultivate mercy, not cultivate democracy, not cultivate compassion, not look at mass incarceration because it's not in your neighborhood, not look at wealth inequality because it's not in your neighborhood, not look at what's happening to the food supply because you can drink green juice. You can't You can't do that and then be all shocked when this explosion of dysfunction and anti-democratic assault happens. Now, it's the 11th hour. We can, we can handle this. I think we're going to move through this, but we have to change. And that includes taking responsibility as citizens for our part in it getting to this point. We have to change. Martin Luther King said there have to be, uh, we need quantitative, Uh, External quantitative changes in our circumstances and qualitative changes in our souls. We all have to be the immune cells now, and I think this awakening is happening. I'm not saying this from a place of thinking it's not happening, because I think actually it is happening. I think that the Trump phenomenon and the crisis in our democracy right now has caused a lot of awakening, but this awakening must be permanentized because If we don't, first of all, if we don't have this awakening, we won't defeat these forces even uh, temporarily. If we are temporary with our awakening, then even if we, let's say, defeat the president, that hydra has many heads. We have to remain awake. Citizenship has to become a part of our sense of what it is to be a conscious human being on a whole new level for the sake of your children and the sake of mine.
0: My dear brother, President, I thank you for your kind invitation to allow me to once again grace this consecrated space. Oh, yes. And if you want to put a smile on my dear brother Malcolm's face, you bring Angela Davis to the same space, too. Oh, yes. I come from a people who have been terrorized, traumatized, and stigmatized extremist measures for 400 years. And I submit to you, I am who I am because somebody loved me. Somebody cared for me. Somebody attended to me. So I've always aspired to be an extremist. When it comes to freedom and liberty, extremist when it comes to love, because I learned in the West family, Irene and Clifton and Shiloh Baptist Church and Reverend Willie P. Cook, who taught me to be human is to be an extremist for love. Yes. To be human is to be a subversive for sweetness. <laughs> to be human. To be a radical for gentleness. And James Baldwin writes that magnificent essay in Esquire magazine in April of 1972 Brother Malcolm X was the most gentlest of people he ever met. But it was hard to keep track of his gentleness. Because when you love folk, especially love those France Fanon called the wretched of the earth, you hate the fact they're being treated unjustly. Yes. And you loathe the fact that they're being treated unfairly. And that's why I have a hatred of the drones being dropped on my precious brothers and sisters in Somalia and in Yemen and in Pakistan and in Afghanistan. Oh, yes. Yeah. I've got a hatred of how my Dalek brothers and sisters are treated in India. I have a hatred of how peasants are treated in Mexico. I will never forget the tears of my precious sister Leslie McSpatten when I was sitting there with hands praying over the space where Brother Michael Brown's body lay for four and a half hours with blood flowing on that street. We were praying in midnight hour, and lo and behold, who comes around the corner but Leslie herself. She says, my spirit was restless. I said, mine was too. Join the prayer circle. Be part of the legacy of Sojourner Truth and Frederick Douglass. Be part of the legacy of Fannie Lou. Hema, be part of the legacy of Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel. Be part of the legacy of a white sister named Dorothy Day and braiding That legacy says what? You start with the tears of those who have been terrorized and traumatized and stigmatized. This is no academic game. This is no... In theoretical puzzle. You're talking about what kind of human being are you going to choose to be in your brief move from mama's womb to tomb. That's what we're talking about. This is no placing. This is no placing. Extremism in defense. Of liberty is not just no vice. You've got to understand that the liberty is rooted in the love supreme of John Coltrane, of Curtis Mayfield, and Bob Marley, and Nina Simone, and a host of others too. Why? Because any liberty, that's only liberty, soon degenerates into something less than liberty. Liberty is rescued only by something greater than liberty, namely the love. And I am proud to say that I come from a black people, a grand people, in the face of 400 years of terrorism, refused to just hate the terrorists, but rather love the justice in such a way that it taught the nation and the world something about love and justice. That's what Malcolm X stood for, y'all. He stood for a love so deep inside of him that it had to flow, and it flowed for a while just on the chocolate side of town. He couldn't understand white brothers and sisters being... Devilish and not also being devils, he was wrong. White brothers and sisters, not devils, but they often act devilish. Yes. He learned that lesson. He learned that lesson. We got the author of our text right here, Saladin Ambar, wrote that magnificent book on Malcolm X, Oxford Debate. Read that text. See the way black love goes hand-to-hand with righteous indignation, holy anger, moral outrage, and it looks as if it's hatred, but it's only black revenge and hatred if you're still in a white supremacist bubble because you're obsessed with your own fears, your own anxiety, your own insecurity. Allow that love to flow. And if you have trouble with it, then turn on. A little Aretha Franklin. (laughs) Listen to a little Theolone monk. They're part of the same tradition. It's called the caravan of love that the Isley Brothers sang about. It's the same love train that Curtis Mayfield was talking about and people get ready. It's the same redemption that Bob Marley was talking about. The tradition of Malcolm X is a human one, but it was rooted in a response to 400 years of terror and trauma and stigma. And therefore, when we reflect on this proposition, keep in mind that it's not just some academic sentence, but it's rooted in blood and sweat and tears, like Emmett mama, when she sat, stood and looked at her baby, And looked at the world and said, I refuse to hate. I will pursue justice for the rest of my life. That's the kind of liberty I want to defend. That's why I'm here today.
1: As always, remember, prosecute the Bush administration for war crimes. We're coming for you, bastards.
0: we the long-range, a suicide bomb, a wicked mind, is a weapon of mass destruction. Whether you are a son, or BBC One, information is a weapon of mass destruction. you could called a Caucasian or a poor Asian. Racism is a weapon of mass destruction. Whether inflation or globalization, fear is a weapon of mass destruction. My dad came into my room holding his hat. I knew he was leaving. He sat on my bed, told me some facts, son. I have the duty.